Hey everyone, I'm Dan Cortler, the host of TED Climate. Each episode, we unpack the problems and solutions of climate change. This season of the show, we're getting into some big ideas that make us optimistic about the future, like meat grown from cells and leather made from mushrooms. And the best part? We look at how building a greener future can be an upgrade instead of a sacrifice. Find and follow TED Climate wherever you're listening to this. This is a CBC Podcast. Climate change threatens everyone, but the threat is even worse for those people living with disabilities. They're all too often on the margins, facing discrimination and fighting to be heard. One law professor's personal challenge with multiple sclerosis is part of the fuel for his determination to change policy. And those changes, he says, will actually benefit everyone. We'll also wrestle with just how to ensure power plants are making the grid as green as possible. And I'll check in with a glaciologist who gave up the great outdoors for a spot inside Ottawa's bureaucracy, where he says he's making a difference for the good of the planet. All that and one long EV journey with added tension from an unexpected source. Welcome to What on Earth. I'm Laura Lynch. It's been another scorching summer across many parts of Canada, and Montreal has been no different. When that city has wrestled with hot and humid weather, Sébastien Jodoin has grappled with the effects on his body. He's the Canada Research Chair in Human Rights, Health and Environment at McGill. Hello. Hello. Can you give me a sense of just what a heat wave in Montreal feels like? So uh, it feels very hot, very humid. And depending on where you live and what resources and assets you have at your disposal, it will feel very differently and it will impact your life in different ways. So tell me what kind of toll it actually takes on you personally. Well, for me, like most people who have multiple sclerosis, when it's very hot outside, it triggers certain neurological symptoms. So it can make me feel more tired. Uh, it can also, in fact, trigger these tiny electric shocks along uh, my spinal cord. In fact, they used to diagnose MS many, many years ago by putting people in hot baths to see oh. what their reaction was. Okay. So yeah, Montreal in July is pretty much a hot bath. And that's why for people who have MS, like I do, but many other conditions, uh, heat waves can be incapacitating and, and even deadly. Take me back to that first summer after your diagnosis. When did you first realize you'd have to live your life differently because of climate change? I started thinking, you know, there must be some way, some people who have addressed the problem of how do you stay cold when it's really hot. And my thinking went to mascots at Walt Disney World. My <laughs> thinking was, you know, how do these people survive July in Orlando? And I discovered this sort of niche community of people who wear these cooling vests, yeah. these like very advanced yeah. cooling vests. They're actually like a special material that freezes at seven degrees. And when you, you wear this vest, uh, even if it's 35 degrees outside, it will keep your internal body temperature cool for at least three hours. So for a few years there uh, in the summer, uh, if you had met me in Montreal, uh, you would have seen me wearing one of these vests. And that's, you know, how I was able to continue doing the things that I wanted to do with my family and the sports I wanted to practice using th these vests. And then more recently, I have had the opportunity to receive very advanced treatments for MS and 
most of those symptoms have basically gone away, which again sort of reinforces another point, which is uh, even within the community of people with disabilities, those of us who have certain privileges will be affected differently by climate change. And that's a huge focus of my work, actually, is not just looking at how people with disabilities are affected, but also how women, girls, racialized communities, indigenous peoples with disabilities, how they are also disproportionately affected by climate change. Right. Uh, had the link between climate change and your own health occurred to you before now? So I was diagnosed in 2015, and I was someone who's been working on climate change for my whole adult life. So I suddenly realized, okay, actually, this problem that I've been grappling with as a scholar and as an activist for so many years, I now see it in a different way. And the experience of those symptoms, but actually also finding solutions to those symptoms really is what inspired me to bring my research into the field of disability and climate change. Right. You changed your career and research trajectory because of this, correct? Yeah. I mean, I, I was always working on climate change, but the disability angle had not occurred to me. And, you know, it was a strange experience of having written a book recently that was about human rights and climate change. And we had a chapter on women and we had a chapter on children and we had a chapter on indigenous peoples. And no one had thought to include, including myself, a chapter on people with disabilities. So it's a group that has been systematically ignored in the conversations around climate change. And in my case, I figured out the connection because, you know, I was already working on climate change and then I got a disability. So tell me what you've been doing since then to work on the research on, in this area and advance the knowledge about it. I founded a, a research program that's focused on disability-inclusive climate action. And we do three things. One is doing legal and policy analysis, so seeing what international law and domestic laws require of states in relation to making sure that they protect the rights of people with disabilities in the climate crisis, and then also systematically assessing whether they're doing this. The second thing we do is empirical research to understand how people with disabilities are affected by climate change and also by efforts to combat climate change. So we have empirical research projects underway in India, and we actually have a project we're doing in Montreal to see how efforts to decarbonize the city are affecting people with disabilities. And then the last component is collaborative research and advocacy with people with disabilities from all over the world. So tell me what kinds of things you've been able to find out. We collected all of the world's uh, climate adaptation and mitigation policies, and we discovered that less than a third of countries even mention disability in any way. And most of the time when they do, it's pretty cursory. So there's nothing in these policies that we could find, for the most part, that had concrete mechanisms to include people with disabilities, to consult them, and to ensure that their rights are respected in climate actions. But what about when an event happens and people with disabilities, I would think, would be more at risk of injury or death when those things happen? Is that something else you've looked into? Yes, absolutely. So we've collected evidence from different types of severe weather events from around the world. So uh, heat waves, including specifically this Montreal heat wave in July 2018 and last year's heat wave in Vancouver. When you look at the, the evidence that's been collected, it shows that the majority of people who died in those heat waves had a disability. And sometimes it's quite striking the way in which disability will exacerbate or increase your vulnerability to climate impacts. So I can say, for instance, as an example, in Montreal in July 2018, 61 people died 
and a quarter of the people who died had schizophrenia. So that's a death rate that's 500 times their share of the Quebec population. Uh, and why would people with schizophrenia be more likely to die in a heat wave? Well, there's a number of reasons. One is they take a medication that actually makes them uh, more sensitive to heat. Um, they're also typically poorer. They're typically marginalized. So they don't have the assets or the friends or the support network to be safe uh, in the context of a heat wave. And then finally, which I would say is the main reason, is no one thought to prioritize this population and its safety in heat waves. So now we see in the Montreal's heat wave plan that they included specifically people with schizophrenia as one of the groups that need to be protected, that need additional services. Uh, but this wasn't the case uh, in 2018. And it's still not the case in most of the heat wave plans um, that we see across the country. Yeah, I was just going to ask you, how far does Canada have to go to achieve what you would like to see in order to help people with disabilities cope with the effects of climate change? I think it starts at the federal level. So basically, the federal government has a strategy that's developing around climate adaptation. They also have funding programs to help cities become more resilient to climate change. And at this stage, we don't see in those plans and in those programs any consideration of the rights of persons with disabilities and their requirements and needs. Number one thing would be for the federal government to show more leadership as it's developing these policies. And then, of course, you would want to see disability-inclusive climate adaptation programs adopted by the provinces and by municipalities. As you said, you, you looked around the world. Were there any countries that, that are doing better, that include people with disabilities in their climate policies? Uh, not really. Oh. Unfortunately, I can't really uh, point you to any uh, specific uh, best practice. What we can see, for instance, is that in some countries, such as the United Kingdom, when they are funding the adaptation planning of developing countries, they'll require that they consult people with disabilities and include them in those plans. But the UK itself actually does not include people with disabilities in its plans. As an academic, as a human rights-focused academic, and as a person living with a disability, this must be so frustrating for you. Yeah, well, I mean, I think it's, uh, it's a clear violation of the UN Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities. It makes absolutely no sense from the perspective of wanting to build a more resilient world. At the same time, the reality is that you know, ableism is, is still very pervasive in society, and people just are not thinking about this group and how it's affected by climate change. So we definitely need more research and more sort of dialogue to bring people with disabilities and their rights to the forefront of the discussions around climate change. I'm curious to know whether you've ever had any meetings or conversations with politicians and made your case to them, and when, if so, what they said in return. Uh, speaking to different officials in, in European governments, what their response is is actually, oh my God, you're right. Like how it's weird that we don't include people with disabilities. Um, so it's kind of just the realization of this is something we should be doing and we're not doing. In fact, next week I'm speaking as a keynote speaker at a summit organized by the G7 on disability and climate change. So hopefully that will provide a platform to really uh, bring this issue to the forefront of the G7 ministers. That's great. Because my next question was going to be, have you spoken to, why haven't you spoken to anyone in the Canadian government? I have discussed it with some of the government officials in the Canadian government, and they sort of said, oh my God, uh, you know, it's, yeah, we should be working on this. Or, 
but there haven't there's not been any sort of concrete dialogue um, that I've seen. You know, to be honest, I think this is not just a reflection on the Canadian government. I think the climate movement as a whole has historically uh, not engaged with disability issues. And I think the disability community has historically not engaged on environmental issues. So I think that there's a huge gulf to be bridged there. So you end up being the flag bearer, the bridge builder here. Well, that's the that's the <laughs> hope. Uh, but I mean, on the one hand, you might think, okay, we're starting from scratch and uh, we have a lot to do in terms of research and policy development. But on the other hand, around the world and in Canada, we've learned over the last 10 years about how to include women and Indigenous peoples in climate action, how to consider their rights. And so I'm hoping that we can build on those experiences to bring in um, the disability community in adaptation planning and, and also our efforts to make our cities more sustainable. So can we flip this conversation just a little bit? How would that help us transition to a low carbon, more climate resilient society? So when you're designing policies or programs that are inclusive of people with disabilities, it will not just benefit people who have specific needs or impairments, but it will also have what's called resonant impacts. So it will benefit society as a whole. So I'll give you a few examples. If we can make our mass transit systems accessible to people with mobility impairments, we're not just helping uh, those people, we're helping the parents with a stroller who want to take a subway. We're helping the person who is injured that week, the person who's elderly. So again, the more we can make these policies uh, and these programs accessible, the more people can benefit and be part of this transition to a low carbon economy. I've seen in the UK a really cool project where they're looking at making cycling accessible. So as we're developing these cycling lanes, you know, if you have certain accessibility needs that make it impossible for you to use a normal bike, it would be great if there was a program in place to help uh, people use uh, adapted bikes uh, or recognizing that wheelchairs can be a form of active transportation. Sebastian Gildoin, it's been a very interesting conversation. Thank you so much for talking to me. Thank you so much for the opportunity to uh, raise this issue. Now, Jodouin did, in fact, speak to a gathering of G7 ministers days after our interview. He says all of them, including Canada's Minister of Disability Inclusion, Carla Qualtro, acknowledge they've neglected the concerns of the disabled when it comes to climate change. And he says he's now hoping to push Qualtro to do more to show leadership. It's September, and that means students, teachers, and university professors are getting ready for a new school year. That would have included Sean Marshall just a few years ago, but the glaciologist from the University of Calgary decided to switch from academia to government, becoming the first departmental science advisor for Environment and Climate Change Canada in 2019. We first spoke to Sean Marshall two years ago, one year into his temporary appointment. I really don't think we're being even visionary enough yet. I, I don't think it's right to compromise our children's planet for a sort of short-term political or economic urgencies. So you can hear there his willingness to criticize the government that he was working for. But it turns out one term wasn't enough for Marshall to do what he wanted to do. 
He's extended his stay inside government ranks for one more year. Hi, Sean. Hello, Laura. It's nice to talk to you again. You too. So it's been a little while that you've been doing this. Are you, are you, miss, <laughs> are you missing your glaciers at all? <laughs> oh my gosh, there are days where I sure miss the glaciers and how kind of simple that is. Just doing the science, being out there measuring things and trying to understand the peace and quiet away from video calls and all those demands. But um, still exciting being here in Ottawa, trying to work with these national climate science programs. And I don't have any regrets about coming here and trying to contribute at this level. Well, that's good to hear. And we'll get into that a little bit more. But I just wanted to ask you, when I talked to you two years ago, you told me that you didn't think glaciers were doomed. Otherwise, you wouldn't be doing the job you were doing. <laughs> What's your view now? <laughs> well, it hasn't gotten any better, has it? <laughs> oh, my gosh. This past couple of summers have been punishing for the glaciers. Glaciers in the Alps this year are having a horrible off-scale year. As you can imagine, they're probably going to lose more than 10% of what was left. So yeah, it's not looking good, but I still really firmly believe it's not too late. <laughs> Some of the bigger glaciers are gonna hang in for a while. They're gonna outlast me at least, and they'll live to the end of the century. So I think we're not acting as urgently as we need to yet, but I, it's not too late to stabilize the climate this century and preserve some of this ice. Is it so interesting to talk to you after the passage of two years? Because the other thing that was going on the last time we talked to you was we were into just the first full-fledged fall of the pandemic. And you thought that the pandemic showed that people could change their behavior quickly if the need was urgent. And you, you thought that bode well for climate change. And we know what's happened since then, you know, the reluctance to wear masks, the, the opposition to vaccine. I'm wondering, yeah. does what happened make you more or less optimistic that the public is ready to do what needs to be done? to cut emissions. Oh, that's so interesting, Laura. It's true. Two years later, it's, there's a lot to learn, I think, from our COVID experience. I still think that it was a good period for science, for the public getting used to hearing from the science, trusted voices of our provincial health professionals. And we always wanted to hear from the scientists, not from the politicians. And so that was a real positive. And I would love to hear more climate scientists out there helping to communicate and build that trust with the public. On the other hand, we saw this real appetite to engage for a while, and then we were done with it somehow before COVID was done with us. And I guess that makes me worried a little bit about climate change action, because this is really a long haul. And you've covered this so well in your show, Laura, the different solutions that are out there and the transition that we need to do to 2050 and beyond. And we need pretty sustained effort and commitment to this. It can't just be a year of hard effort, and then we can pat ourselves on the backs. So I think we need to learn from the COVID experience. I do think that climate action doesn't need to look like COVID confinements, though. There's lots of ways this can be really positive for our health, our well-being, our lifestyles. And we need to be thinking about those things and really communicating and trying to get the big picture as we move forward, seeing all the positives that are part of this action. Your your solution, so to speak, the way you wanted to try to affect change has been working in government, and you've been there since 2019. I'm wondering what your greatest challenge has been being on the inside, so to speak. That's really interesting. Sometimes it's hard to navigate government, I can put it that way. It's, it's, uh, I think a lot of people spoke, on the outside uh, feel that way, too. <laughs> yeah, I guess I, I think I was a bit naive when I first came in and when we first spoke. You know, it's a really big ship. It's kind of like our energy and infrastructure systems with climate action. This is a big ship to turn and it takes a while. So 
three years into my mandate here. And as you said, I've got another, I guess, 10 months left. There's still so much work to do. And I feel like I'm still learning how to bring science to the table more effectively. And you have expressed your frustration, or at least you did with me, about politicians not acting with enough urgency or vision. Do you think that that's changed? I think that we still need a bit more courage and vision and boldness because honestly, Laura, we're not acting in a way that's commensurate with the gravity of climate change and all the things that are happening and how quickly the the world is changing. And this is really true in Canada. We've seen all ranges of extreme weather and Arctic warming since we last spoke two years ago. You know, the urgency is there, but the the action is still a little bit (laughs) slow to come. It's easy to um, feel like, why aren't we getting there? We've seen some of that climate solution space. We know what it looks like. A lot of it can be positive. Why aren't we just jumping in with both feet? And, and I think I understand better all the different things kind of slowing us down and holding us back. But I do still feel the same way that we need a bit more courage and conviction and creativity. And, and we really need to dive in now as much as ever. And I see the policies and the progressive ideas that are there. We, we just need to really take action and get moving on some of these. And I think there's some role for better communication and better climate literacy across Canada, better ways that we can actually report on progress and get this sustained kind of understanding and buy-in that we need. Well, in that sense, then, what do you think your greatest accomplishment has been in the time you've spent in government? <laughs> That's interesting for me personally. It's been to help understand a bit better how things work and, and how, you know, how we as scientists can work within that to try to move things forward. So some things that I'm pretty excited about are this chance I've had with the Departmental Science Advisor Network, you know, with my colleagues in different departments to connect and work on a lot of really interesting cross-cutting science, water, climate, biodiversity, indigenous partnerships, Arctic open science. There's so many things that cut across, you know, the whole science ecosystem. And I think we're making progress in seeing how we can bridge some of this and work in a bit more collaboratively and break down some of these barriers. So that's that's not getting into the climate action and moving forward and meeting our Paris Agreement commitments, but it's something we need to do to provide a better scientific basis for understanding and informing our climate action. And I guess my biggest project over this past year that I'm pretty excited about is been working with an Environment and Climate Change Canada team on a national climate change science and knowledge plan, which will come out in a few months. That sounds very bureaucratic. Can... <laughs> what is it? <laughs> it does. <laughs> Our short term for it is Climate Science 2050. It's a science vision, actually. And it's essentially the climate science we need to move forward and to inform Canadians on better climate change communications better sort of social science, behavioral science uh, considerations within our climate science and policies, better fusion of knowledge systems, social sciences and health sciences and indigenous knowledge systems with natural sciences and understanding climate change. So it's really meant to be a vehicle to improve science coordination and collaboration and how we do our science to better inform our climate action. And I think it will help with the actual climate solution space because within this, we have lots of ideas about how to better engage with people, with citizen science programs, with community-based 
cities climate emergency plans and you know online carbon calculator tools that we can all be part of you know trees for life programs to get schools involved to help contribute to our two billion trees there's all sorts of ideas on implementation and how science can support that well you've got a date i will talk to you about it when 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 the plan is supposed <laughs> to be released later in the year but i just want to ask you finally you told me two years ago that you had commiserated with your counterpart in, in the New Zealand government um, about your mutual desire to see science underpin more of government policies. Do you two still have your uh, your, your support group? <laughs> we, we, we do. I think we probably expanded it actually to a broader departmental science advisor network. And yeah, it, I mean, it's. I feel like part of my role is I, sometimes I feel like I'm a lobbyist for science or a uh, kind of an auditor or somebody that's like constantly saying, but where's the science? And so I, that's a constant mission. And But how many of you feel- are in the support group now <laughs> swapping stories? <laughs> oh, there's probably about a, a dozen of us. And I still am in touch with my counterpart in New Zealand. And um, there are others within the Canadian Departmental Science Advisor Network. And I think I'm still learning how to do this most effectively, you know, get to those really high decision-making levels and bring the science in a way that makes it really clear and compelling. But this has been a great challenge going forward. If we have some nice climate action initiatives for mitigation, for reducing emissions, we really need to follow up and show the progress. And right now there's lots of funding going out for various emissions reduction strategies, but we don't always have that follow-up or those success stories where we need it, those course corrections, and science can kind of neutrally help us with that without having to be political, and that's where its value is. So it's a continuing mission, I guess, to try to bring science to the table. Yeah, it's it's a big conversation, and I really appreciate you giving me some of your time to have this smaller part of the conversation, and I know we'll be talking again, Sean. Thank you. Well, it's always a pleasure. Thank you, Laura. So stay tuned. In a few months, we will have Sean back on to talk about this new project that is a priority for him. And it is all about trying to communicate across different disciplines and make sure the science underpins government policy. You're listening to What on Earth on CBC Radio 1 and Sirius XM. I'm Laura Lynch. Paper or plastic? Oh, I forgot my own bags. Um, plastic. No, wait, paper. Hang on, which one's better? I don't know. Don't stress, Neil. The podcast Living Planet is here to help. We know you want to do what's right for the planet, but you're busy and you have to make a thousand small decisions every day. So we endeavor to answer what's better. Cotton or polyester? Tea or coffee? For answers to these environmental conundrums and your questions, subscribe to Living Planet wherever you listen to podcasts. The federal government has committed to big cuts in greenhouse gas emissions to meet the goal of a net zero electricity grid by 2035. Today, about one-fifth of electricity used in Canada is generated by burning fossil fuels. With electricity demand expected to grow, my next guest is concerned that natural gas will fill that void and emissions will follow. One solution is to set a standard that limits emissions from power generation plants across the country. And just recently, Ottawa sketched out what Canada's clean electricity standard should look like. Benu Jakumar has taken a look. She's the director of clean energy at the Pembina Institute. Hello. Hello, Laura. Thanks for having me. 
Now, I'll, I'll get to your concerns in a minute, but first, I would, if you could give us just a bit of a primer, how does the clean, uh, clean electricity standard work? So the way this regulation is being designed, it sets a target regulated emissions intensity standard. And what that means is it sets a limit on the amount of emissions that a facility can generate for every unit of energy that it produces. And if you cannot meet the standard, you have to shut down. And this standard won't be set at zero. It'll be set at slightly above zero. The government is calling it near zero. So in addition to setting this very physical standard, the regulation will require the use of offsets or other mechanisms to effectively bring down any remaining facility emissions to net zero. What might happen if Canada's demand for electricity grows without a standard in place? Because this is still at a draft stage. Yeah, that is an excellent question, Laura. Right now, if the standard wasn't in place, one good thing we have happening in Canada is a coal phase out by 2030. And, you know, that's something we can actually pat ourselves on the back on. Um, We're on track for achieving that and emissions will go down because of it. But at the same time, we're expecting gas-fired generation in Canada to increase by 70%. And this can undo a lot of the emission reduction savings we can have from the coal phase-out. And so that is why it is really critical to bring in a strong regulation that can provide a clear signal to stop investments in fossil fuel plants that don't have carbon capture and that can give confidence to investors to go big on clean energy. Okay. Now, you've talked about this a little bit already, but we know Ottawa has shared this mm-hmm. this preview of, of what these regulations mm-hmm. might look like. What did you think? You know, as you said, this is a draft, and what it provides is a frame on how broadly the regulation will be implemented. The government is still working on some details and consultations with stakeholders. Um, looking at the frame that they have provided, I think we can get to a net zero grid in the broad uh, framework that exists. But some very critical details and elements of the frame need to be changed in order to assure that we get to the net zero grid. And the first thing in that I would say is that the current frame says that the standard won't come into effect until 2035. Waiting that long and given all the political uncertainties in the next 13 years really weakens the signal to investors. And you could allow gas plants to come online without carbon capture in the interim time. What we think should happen is that you have a gradual phase-in of the standard. So have an early application of the standard for new generation. So this is generation where capital investment hasn't happened yet. And so why allow new plants to come that have emissions on them? Uh, So have an early application of the standard as early as 2024 or 2025 for new plants. And then for existing plants, the standard phases in more gradually. The other way of phrasing in the standard is also to allow for flexibilities on how you comply with the standard. So, you know, maybe you reach a physical standard by 2035, but on your way to getting to that physical standard, maybe you can comply to that standard through offsets. And the advantage of allowing offsets as a compliance mechanism to get to the standard is then we can build our offset industry. You know, there's a lot of work we need to do to build our technologies for capturing uh, carbon from the air. And so having some interim flexibilities uh, can actually help with building out some of these other 
industries. Okay. I just want to put this to you. The David Suzuki Foundation says there's yeah. a loophole in the draft because it could allow all gas utilities built before 2025 to be exempt from the standards. And that kind of seems to fly in the face of net zero electricity goals. Do you agree with that? Definitely. I think if we allow several plants to be built between now and 2025, what we're going to have is several gigawatts of gas power plants that will be incompatible with a net zero grid in 2035. And so they become stranded assets that could become costs to taxpayers or ratepayers. And so we want to mitigate that risk of adding even more new stranded assets to the grid as much as possible. But it's interesting when you read the standard, it says that those plants can run to the end of their, what was the phrase, to their useful life? The end life. of prescribed life. End of yes. pre- what does that mean? Yeah, so end of prescribed life, what it allows is for plants to operate past 2035 without meeting the standard. And what this means is, again, you're adding more emissions to the grid beyond 2035. We took a look at some scenarios, and it really depends on how you define what the end of prescribed life is. But in some scenarios, you could have a third of the gas generation in Canada not meeting the standard past 2035. And when you have this much emissions on the grid, I think it'll be very um, incredible for Canada to claim that we have a truly net zero grid and to take that to the global stage and call ourselves a leader in the clean energy transition and in climate action. So you're in Albertan yourself and in your province, about 90% of the electricity still comes from coal and natural gas. The transition to net zero electricity is obviously going to be harder for Alberta. It's going to be harder for some regions than others. What is needed to support regions like yours? Yeah, that's a fantastic question and a very real struggle. Um, I have to say, these type of regional difficulties are also why the clean electricity regulation has some flexibilities built into it. But what I would say is, rather than diluting the clean electricity regulation, the way to support regions like Alberta is by the feds investing in clean energy in the provinces. An excellent example is just south of the border, you know, the recent Inflation Reduction Act. It makes significant investments in clean energy, but it also has regional elements. So one piece of that is um, if your clean energy project in the U.S. is in a community that has a coal mine or a coal power plant that will be closed, you will get an additional 10% tax credit. And that is significantly changes project economics. So I think this is a kind of smart investments and policy design we need that help support particularly clean energy investments in communities that are going to be impacted. Okay. I, I just got to ask you this a bit more about yourself because I, I understand that mm. you love electricity and you've worked, <laughs> you've worked in the sector for decades. You yeah. first, first you, were, you were an engineer within with utilities, then a policy analyst. What gets you yeah. so excited about electricity? <laughs> um. I know it's a period of massive change in the electricity sector. I have to say my career started at Sundance One, uh, a coal plant in Alberta that has already been retired because of coal regulations. So things are coming full circle. I think what gets me excited about this work is, one, I'd say I see electricity uh, and especially getting to a clean electricity grid as the backbone of getting to a clean economy in Canada. You know, as we start to electrify other sectors, you know, like 
electric cars and transportation, electric heating for buildings, electric industrial processes in heavy industry, the demand for electricity is going to grow. And so a clean grid will have a multiplier effect in terms of emission reductions in other sectors. Another personal interest for me in this transition in the electricity sector is the opportunity it provides for increasing equity. So, you know, I have been a woman engineer in the industrial sector, and I've been fortunate to work with great colleagues who have supported me in my career. But I know that women are not represented uh, equitably in the energy sector. In uh, Alberta, for example, the oil and gas sector has uh, about 30% women. So as we transform the grid and new industries emerge and we have folks investing in renewables, there's a whole storage industry that's evolving. I think it also creates opportunities for us to right some of the historical inequities you know, and create space for more participation by women, by people of color, uh, indigenous communities. So yeah, that type of opportunity for social change also really motivates me. I also feel fortunate, like the decades of work I've done in the electricity sector, I've had a chance to work with incredibly passionate and smart people. And so if I can, I would love to give a shout out to the folks out there, you know, who are working so hard to make this happen in an affordable and reliable way. You know, people in the federal government, civil society, regulators, the electricity system operators, the power plant operators, you know, it's really remarkable and reassuring to me the number of smart, dedicated people that are working on this. So, you know, that really gives me confidence that we can get to a net zero grid by 2035. You know, I kind of think that if somebody could just sort of plug into you, you'd be a power source all by yourself. <laughs> <laughs> I, can, I can certainly hear your passion for this. And I, yeah. I, I just want to thank you so much for talking to me. No, I really appreciate it, Laura. And I think questions like the ones you're asking really help advance this conversation too, right? Beyond the policy wonkiness to what's relevant for Canadians. Now, thank you so much for your questions, Laura. Appreciate it. Now, we contacted Environment and Climate Change Canada to ask for its response to Banu Jaikumar's concerns, including that 2035 phase-in date and exempting existing gas power plants from the standard for an undefined period. We have yet to hear back. From Calgary, Alberta, we head to Honolulu, Hawaii. Hawaii leads all others in the United States for its rapid transition away from the use of fossil fuels for its power grid. It's aiming to use only renewable energy by 2045. And its electricity standard has helped push the state forward. Isaac Morawaki has been pushing for clean energy policy for decades. He's the managing attorney for Earth Justice's Mid-Pacific office, and he is in Honolulu. Isaac, hello. Hello. You grew up in Hawaii. Can you describe what you've seen over the decades when it comes to shifting away from fossil fuels? Yes, I've been born and raised in Hawaii, lived here practically all my life. And really, it was only in the last 15 years when our state got really serious on moving from fossil fuels to clean energy. About that time, 15 years ago, people realized that not only was it bad environmentally to be relying on 
oil mostly for our energy needs, but it was bad for our wallets too, basically sending millions and millions of dollars to foreign countries every single year, just a constant drain on the economy. The volatility was, was a real downer too. Um, and so about 15 years ago, Hawaii decided to embark on a transition from fossil fuels to clean energy that led to the passage of what they call the renewable portfolio standard, which is a mandated percentage of renewables that the utilities have to meet in their grid portfolio. And I want to get uh-huh. into that more in just a second, but I first wanted to ask you to, to talk about how the climate has been changing in Hawaii. Well, in Hawaii, we're on the front lines of climate change. You can see us as a bit of a canary in a coal mine, although everyone's feeling it at this point. As a island state in the middle of the ocean, we're already feeling the impacts with rising temperatures, with sea level rise, coastal erosion, you, you name it. And we stand to feel the brunt and, and experience the brunt of the impacts the further and further we go down this path of no return on climate change. And so more impetus for Hawaii to do what it's doing, and it's it's adopted an electricity standard. Can you tell us how it works? Yes, the Renewable Portfolio Standard, or RPS for short, is a mandated percentage of renewable that our u- electric utilities have to meet, and they're tied to certain deadline dates. So in Hawaii, we started off at pretty low percentages, 10%, 20%, what have you. We really got serious back in 2008 when we committed to 40% by 2030. Uh, and that got us going to a point where in 2015, Hawaii took the leap of faith and established a 100% renewable standard by 2045. But the studies show that we can actually achieve 100% before 2045 and, and actually save money doing it. We, we decided to take that leap early and get going early. And, and what kinds of renewable energies are, are you using there? Mostly solar and, and wind are our main renewable sources right now. But the renewable law as written right now in Hawaii does include other sources like hydro, biomass is also included. Okay, so so what the standards have clearly had an impact then on the transition to renewables. Absolutely, uh, and I just wanted to note that the the next deadline is 2030, 40 percent renewable. Our main utility here in Hawaii, Hawaiian Electric, has already reached 40 percent. In this year and next year, we'll cross that threshold. So that's eight years early. There is also a utility on Kauai that is a co-op. Uh, and they've already reached 60% renewable, and, and they're charging forward even faster. Once you set the target, you get the utility running, and we've been blowing past these these goals very quickly. Well, yeah, obviously there are things that you, that you can boast about, but Hawaii's grid isn't fully decarbonized yet. I'm wondering if you can tell me what challenges remain. Oh, there's many, many challenges. Uh, getting going is the easy part, and then... You get to harvest the low-hanging fruit, you get to gain your momentum, and then as you work yourself up the tree, it's going to get harder, especially in a place like Hawaii, where we don't have a lot of space to develop you know, huge utility-scale solar plants, for example, or huge wind farms. Um, and, and if you do go that route, you will have to deal with sort of community acceptance issues. And, and we've seen that already, even as we 
you know, start in our initial stages in Hawaii. Yeah, they don't want all so, those wind farms. They don't want all those solar panels. So what, what can you do to bring them on board? Well, first of all, rooftop solar, right off the bat. That is a no-brainer solution because you're putting renewables on the already developed space. So our utility has sort of mapped out a plan and they've already acknowledged that in order to reach 100% renewable, especially on the urban core on, on Oahu Island, we need solar panels on all the rooftops. So that's the starter. And then on top of that, you know, how are you going to enable you know, the large utility scale projects, whether it's solar and wind? Uh, because we really do need all of the above in order to get all the way to 100%. That's where community engagement comes in, and it's going to be really critical in the next 10 years as we reach higher and higher renewable percentages to make sure we do that community outreach and integrate the community in the process, in the dialogue, as well as the benefits so that we have a level of acceptance and consent and we bring everyone together you know, as we move forward. It, but you're not there yet with the communities, I take it. No, I think there's a lot of communities that have been integrated in, in the way I described, and they, they see the benefits. And there are some, though, that we have been, we've had notable incidents. For example, on this island, Oahu, in a town called Kuhuku, there were actually protests and arrests around a big uh, wind farm that went up right outside of people's houses. So that, you know, at, at a point where they can't even sleep at night because it's so noisy with all the, the turbines cranking. Uh, yeah, and there were massive protests. And so I think that was a wake-up call for Hawaii where, okay, we've kind of had it easy here in, in, in the initial surge, but in order to meet our goals, we're really going to have to do it in a community-based, community-mindful way. Um, we often hear about this this issue of intermittency as, a, as an issue. It creates this unreliable grid because wind doesn't always blow, sun doesn't always shine. How does Hawaii deal with that? There are solutions and technological solutions planning solutions to, to deal with that. that. That really is what they call red herring. Um, you got a lot more problems to deal with than this you know, specter of intermittency. So one thing you can do is build a lot of solar, build a lot of wind, maybe even to a redundancy point. And so that you know maybe the sun isn't shining in Ontario one day, but it's booming in British Columbia. And that diversity effect has shown to smooth out any kind of intermittency in, in, in any given location. Um, a country like Canada has a very large grid over a very large, expansive landmass. And that's really ideal in terms of building a renewable grid because you can gain the benefits of that diversity in climate and renewable output throughout that entire country. Now, in Hawaii, we're limited to very small landmasses and isolated islands that are not interconnected. And so unlike the continental U.S., continental Canada, every island right now has to rely on its own energy output. So Hawaii has already reached these renewable goals, 40% on the Hawaiian electric grid, 60% uh, on the Kauai grid, and the grid is not shutting down. And so, you know, don't even talk about intermittency until you start reaching those types of levels. Fair enough. Um, so Canada is developing an electricity standard right now. What advice do you have? Do it. Just do it. The whole point of the RPS, the Renewable Portfolio Standard, or any similar mandate, is to just set the target. And so everyone's aligned toward that goal. They realize we're going to do it or else. It kind of drives itself once you set the goal or the mandate. And, and Hawaii is perfect proof for that. 
Um, when, when we set the 40% goal, people thought it was overambitious. When we set the 100% goal, we had no idea how we were going to reach that. We still don't have an idea exactly how we're going to get there. But the point is you set the gears in motion, you animate the market, and then the market and, and the customers take over. And, and what you can do too is on top of the RPS, also give the incentives to the utility, uh, positive incentives to do mm. the right thing in moving from fossil fuels to clean energy as, as much as possible. And that's, and that's what Hawaii has done actually in the last several years. You have the backstop in terms of the penalties in the renewal mandate. On top of that, we're offering an incentive to the utility, hey, if you reach these targets earlier, you can have money in your pocket. And that's a win-win-win for the utility and their, their financial interests, the customers, because renewables are cheaper, and of course, the planet. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Every day, people like our listeners are making commitments to stand up for the climate. That includes Frances Deverell. She's 74, she lives in Nanaimo, BC, and every year she drives across Canada. A few years ago, she vowed to one day make that trip in an electric car. Back then in 2010, I got a new car and I decided that would be the last gasoline vehicle I would purchase as part of my own personal climate action commitment. So my husband and I saved for over 10 years. And in conjunction with that, I really started reducing my flying. We wanted to lighten our footprint in every way that we could. But to get an electric car, we had to be able to get across the country because we do that every year. We have family in both locations in BC and Ontario, and we like to see them. Deverell says the trip is possible, but it is not for the faint of heart. You can do it, but you have to be ready for problem solving. There are going to be things go wrong somewhere along the way. She says sometimes charging stations aren't where you need them. Sometimes they're out of service. But this year, it was something entirely different. I had no idea that all of the charging stations that we would have access to were going to be down because of that Rogers outage. That was a bit of a shock. After days of driving, Deverell and her husband had almost made it to their destination. But in central Ontario, things came down to the wire. We were almost stranded in Longbow Lake, but we managed. We had enough kilometers left that with very careful driving, 60 kilometers an hour, we squeaked into Dryden and got a charge in Dryden. Every time we were almost stranded, my heart was beating. I was in stress mode, uh, losing sleep. It was not pleasant. Well, unpleasant as it was, Deverell still sees a solution in infrastructure. There needs to be a lot more redundancy of chargers. That is, uh, at the high speed level, for long distance travel, any town or village that's depending on traffic that goes from one city to another, uh, 
I'd like to see the hotels get level two chargers, all the hotels. I'd like it to be as much as Wi-Fi. You assume you're going to get Wi-Fi when you're at a hotel. You should assume you're going to get a charger. Luckily, Deverell has some advice for brave souls who want to make the trip. Plan ahead. Plan ahead and plan ahead. And know what your options are if, if that's not going to work. Prepare to be resilient. And give yourself enough time. You know, that you're going to need time. If you're young, uh, you know, you'll sleep in your car, do whatever you have to do, you know. But uh, <laughs> it's a little different for us. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sleeping in your car, not too comfortable, I don't think. If you want to get in touch with us to tell us about the climate action that you're taking, our email address is earth at cbc.ca. You can also tweet us at CBC What on Earth or me at Laura Lynch CBC. In the 1970s, the world started to take note of a growing environmental problem, the depletion of ozone, a protective layer that shields us from UV rays. From human-made chemicals used in products like hairspray, aerosol deodorant, refrigerators, air conditioners, even styrofoam. By the mid-1980s, it was as though someone had punched a hole in the ozone layer. And we could actually show people the data when you watched the evening news, these incredible images of the ozone hole forming. I mean, it was scary. It looks like the master that ate Manhattan, you know, and there it is. It's like, whoa. So that's when I said to myself, wow, I mean, this is really a huge threat to humanity and we need to get on the stick and do something about it. Scientist Susan Solomon was just 29 when she led an experiment that helped prove how these chemicals were causing harm. And in September of 1987, countries from around the world came together to sign a binding agreement, the Montreal Protocol. It's a story of how the public, scientists, politicians, and industry found solutions and replacements. It's a story that is still evolving. Next week, What on Earth producer Molly Siegel will bring us an international environmental success story, one that can inspire climate action today. That's all for us. The show was put together this week by associate producers Danielle Piper and Zoe Yunker, producer Molly Siegel, and me. Matthias Wilson is our engineer. This week, Rachel Sanders is our senior producer. I'm Laura Lynch. Thank you for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.